If in order for us to function and find common ground and compromise and get things done, we've got to get bought off with a special project in our state, then we're in worse shape than I thought we were. And when you're an NRA member, it resonates even farther, carrying the weight of millions of NRA members. The old practice was so abusive, I remember looking through an old intelligence bill, which is secret and classified, nobody could see. And there, a very powerful senior member of Congress had gotten one quarter of all the earmarks in the bill. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress. In this episode, we continue our examination of the legislative process by looking at the factors that shape congressional legislation, or more frequently, derail it. We look at how members of Congress, lobbyists, and interest groups impact the legislative process and examine the procedural reforms that impact the way members of Congress can engage in deal-making amongst themselves. For our first segment, Nigel Wilkerson interviews Dr. Jack Miller from Portland State University's Political Science Department. I would say that there's a common perception among the American people that Congress is, as the phrase puts it, a sausage factory, a place where ugly things happen during the production process. Among those ugly things is the way that legislation is impacted by special interests, well-funded lobbyists, and backroom deal-making. I want to start, though, by asking you to lay out what might be thought of as the quote-unquote normal process of legislative deal-making. Well, you know, the Schoolhouse Rock song, I'm Just a Bill, does a pretty good job of laying out the so-called normal process, the civics textbook way a bill is supposed to become a law. First it gets written, then introduced by a particular member of Congress, then referred to committee where it's examined and investigated and amended and debated, then it's on to the full chamber for a vote where it might get debated and amended some more, then over to the other chamber for the same treatment. Obviously at each of these stages there's room for influence, and another normal part of the process is for members of Congress to try to influence each other at various stages of this process, most often while the bill sits in committee, which Schoolhouse Rock correctly indicates can be a long, long time. Now, what we might think of as internal legislative politicking, this involves what some people call horse trading, though maybe that's not a good term to use if we've already introduced the sausage factory metaphor. No one wants to think there's horse meat in their sausage, though there probably is, right? Anyway, horse trading, which is actually more technically known as log rolling, is simply the practice of exchanging favors to get deals done. I vote for your bill, you vote for mine, that kind of thing. You add this amendment to this bill in committee or you take out this provision and I'll vote yes for reporting it out to the full chamber for vote. And next time I need something from you, you'll remember this and go along with my request unless it's totally obnoxious to you, meaning it'll destroy your reelection prospects. There's nothing wrong with log rolling conceptually. That's how bills move through at a faster than glacial pace. It's how bipartisan bills get made. It's how compromises are reached within parties. I'd love to vote on your bill in exchange for you voting on mine, but honestly, there's this one part of it that's poisonous to me politically, so if you take that out, I'm in. Or, yeah, that bill's got a few provisions in it that would spend a lot of money in my district, so even though there are a few things I don't like, I'm a yes. This is all entirely normal. Politics is about accommodating different views and interests, and if Congress, which represents a very diverse set of views and interests, is going to get anything done, there need to be these normalized methods of accommodating them. What role do lobbyists play in this quote-unquote normal process? 
Well, you know, lobbyists are really there to remind legislators about other perspectives that could, and in their view should, influence the way those legislators use their voting power and committee assignments. Deals with other members and the carrot and stick power of the leadership are potentially very influential over rank and file members thinking about a particular bill or an amendment to a bill raised in one of the committees they're on. Lobbyists are there to remind members that there are other things to think about, namely money and votes. Obviously, if a lobbyist represents a major campaign funder, that viewpoint is going to get the attention of a member of Congress. And if a potential deal is going to hurt that lobbyist client, they're there to point out the potential fundraising impact of that deal. The campaign funding that lobbyists represent is important, of course, but so is the constituent connection if a lobbyist can make one. If, for example, a defense contractor is a major employer in your district, a lobbyist from that industry is going to remind you how your votes on the defense budget could impact the economy in your district, always a major concern for a member of Congress. Or if an environmental group lobbyist can point to a significant grassroots effort in your district among environmental activists and a demonstrated willingness of your constituents to listen to those activists when they go knocking on voters' doors, and that base of voters represents an important component of your re-election effort, you're going to listen to that lobbyist's perspective very carefully. Lobbyists also represent a source of policy expertise. Because they're paid by groups in particular industries or by activists in a particular area, they know a lot about a specific policy area they're lobbying in. Agricultural industry lobbyists know about farm policy, environmental lobbyists know about environmental regulations, etc. Members of Congress don't always have this level of expertise, and lobbyists can provide it to them in the form of data and statistics, white papers, model legislation, that kind of thing. Obviously, the information a lobbyist provides is going to serve its clients' interests, so it's not like they're these neutral staffers providing a member of Congress with objective information. But insofar as a member of Congress needs information to do the job, lobbyists can exert influence by providing self-serving information. This form of influence, though, is really much more powerful at the state level, where state legislators don't have nearly the staffing support that members of Congress do, and frequently have much less experience in the areas they're legislating about. Newer members of Congress are more susceptible to this kind of influence than longer-serving members, who've either got good staff or themselves have cultivated policy expertise during their time in Congress. This is one of the things that's actually bad about term limits. It makes it easier for lobbyists to prey on inexperienced legislators. On the flip side of providing policy expertise that members of Congress might lack, lobbyists also represent future employment for members of Congress who do have a particular area of policy expertise, along with the political connections from years in Congress that make that expertise extremely valuable in the future when they're no longer in office. I'm talking about the revolving door, where retiring members of Congress get lucrative consulting jobs in industries where they have expertise and influence. Lobbies are there to remind present members that these lucrative consulting jobs are out there for people who do the right thing by their clients. What I'm hearing you say is that lobbyists aren't on Capitol Hill just to throw around money. That's one thing they do, but they're there to throw around whatever weight they have. And sometimes that's campaign funding, sometimes it's a constituent connection, sometimes it's policy expertise, and sometimes it's the revolving door. That's well and concisely put, Nigel. Thanks for summing up. I have one final question for you today, Dr. Miller. It's well known that Congress is becoming less and less able to turn out even routine legislation and that bipartisan deals are few and far between. Can you talk about the ways that Congress has evolved in recent years or decades that you think are contributing to these trends? Yeah, of course. One of the biggest changes to the way Congress functions is that bill writing and amending is done more and more by the leadership team and less and less by committees. This narrows the opportunities for compromise and deal-making to a much smaller group of people, and it shifts the internal legislative politicking away from committee chairs, committee members, and rank-and-file members log-rolling with each other. And it moves that politicking over to party leaders trying to corral the members of their caucus to vote yes on a final bill that very few of those members have had any hand in crafting. That's difficult to do by itself because a member who's been excluded from the deal doesn't have the same kind of interest in voting yes as someone who's been log rolled into that yes. 
Also, it generally means that party leaders need to rely entirely on their own party members and few if any votes from across the aisle. So in order to get anything passed, you have to be in the majority. Add to this the fact that the House banned earmarks in 2011, and now one of the biggest ways that leaders can bring along reluctant members and maybe get a decent number of minority party votes as well is off the table. So the traditional methods of creating compromises and forging bipartisan coalitions to pass a bill aren't available, and that severely curtailed Congress's output and made bipartisan legislation as rare as the spotted owl. Thank you for your insights, Dr. Miller. This has all been very helpful. Earmarking is the practice of placing funds for a specific project that benefits a specific district or state into an appropriation bill. Earmarking was long a standard way of accomplishing the log rolling that gets congressional legislation passed. Earmarking sounds a lot like vote buying to a lot of people, and there's never any shortage of earmark projects that can be portrayed as wasteful and ridiculous. The term pork barrel project has been applied to these types of problematic earmarks. Pork barrel is certainly not a flattering term. Sausage factory, horse trading, pork barrel, lots of bad meat metaphors there in Congress. Heightened criticism of pork barrel spending led the newly Republican-controlled Congress to ban earmarks in 2011, but in the years following the earmark ban, the legislative logjam has gotten worse. The following is a 2018 National Public Radio report by Susan David on the effort to bring back earmarks for the purpose of curing congressional dysfunction. It was recorded on January 14, 2018, at the beginning of the year that would eventually cost the Republican Party its House majority, a possibility that House Republican leaders were certainly aware of and were trying to take steps to avoid. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans are reviving the debate over earmarks. The practice once let lawmakers steer government money to their pet projects. Under former Speaker John Boehner, the House banned earmarks in 2011. Now some Republicans, including President Trump, say that was a mistake. NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis has more. When President Trump told lawmakers on live national television this week that Congress should consider reinstating earmarks, lawmakers like Florida Republican Tom Rooney cheered. He was exactly right. I couldn't believe he said it. I was like, jumped out of my chair. I'm just like, thank God somebody is speaking truth. Rooney is an outspoken advocate for bringing earmarks back with limits. Lawmakers like him say earmarks could be the key to much needed legislative compromise. He says there's a way to bring them back without reviving the corrupt practices that led to the ban seven years ago. They like to roll out like these pork barrel illegal things that people went to jail for. I'm talking about vetted in the light of day through the committee process, projects in members' districts that they can go home to and say, I got this done for my constituents. Lawmakers will get a chance to make their case next week when the House Rules Committee plans to hold two days of public televised hearings on the earmark ban. The hearings are part of a deal cut by House Speaker Paul Ryan at the beginning of this Congress. House Republicans were on the verge of voting in a secret ballot behind closed doors to reinstate earmarks. Ryan intervened and said it would send the wrong message following the recent election of a president who had promised to drain the swamp. The speaker was noncommittal when asked this week if he thinks earmarks will make a comeback. Conversations are having a comeback. Um, no, I think what you're talking about is the Rules Committee hearings. We've encouraged our members all along uh, to, to talk about budget process reforms. Um, many of us have opinions on this issue, but I want our members to have conversations. Steve Ellis will testify at the hearing next week. Ellis works for Taxpayers for Common Sense, a nonpartisan watchdog group that was a leading critic of past earmark practices. Ellis says Republicans don't have a great track record with restraint when it comes to earmarks. They kind of created the whole environment. You know, we went from, in 1996, according to the Congressional Research Service, there were about 3,000 earmarks. Um, 
in all the spending bills. In 2005, there were more than 15,000. That decade-long era of the Republican majority also led to a wave of corruption scandals involving earmarks, including prison sentences for people like former Republican lobbyist Jack Abramoff and former California Republican Congressman Randy Duke Cunningham. Democrats were not immune to these earmark abuses. When they held the majority from 2007 to 2010, Democrats instituted disclosure requirements for earmark requests, but they didn't ban them. But many lawmakers pledged to never request an earmark. Tennessee Democratic Congressman Jim Cooper was one of them. This is how he remembers those days. The old practice was so abusive, I remember looking through an old intelligence bill, which is secret and classified, nobody could see. And there, a very powerful senior member of Congress had gotten one quarter of all the earmarks in the bill, and he wasn't even on the committee. You know, it's incredible what theft will take place if nobody's looking. Earmark advocates say that when earmarks were in fashion, Washington was more bipartisan and more deals got done. Missouri Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill rejects that argument. That's just not true. I mean, and frankly, if that's it, if in order for us to function and find common ground and compromise and get things done, we've got to get bought off with a special project in our state, then we're in worse shape than I thought we were. What earmark advocates and opponents alike do agree on is this. In private, most lawmakers in Congress would like to see earmarks reinstated in some form. The question is if they're willing to do it in public. Susan Davis, NPR News, The Capitol. Long-rolling and lobbying aren't the only ways for things to move through or stall in Congress. Interest groups deploy other strategies to influence members of Congress to vote the way they want them to, from threatening primary challenges, a more and more common tactic during the past two decades, to providing non-financial support for re-election efforts. Groups that have large numbers of supporters and a strong grassroots activist base can influence members of Congress without spending large amounts of money on either lobbying or campaign donations. Unions, for example, have a large number of members, often concentrated in certain states or districts, and their endorsements can carry a lot of weight, potentially determining the outcome of a congressional election. The American Association of Retired People has millions of members with a well-noted high turnout rate, giving that organization influence with a relatively low financial expenditure. This next report, filed by our very own Nigel Wilkerson, examines the influence of one of the most successful and notorious interest group organizations in America, the National Rifle Association. Last year... 5.4 million Americans purchased a firearm for the first time in their lives. And you know why? Because all of them can see what's happening all around them in their country. And they want to be able to protect themselves, and they want to be able to protect their families. That's Wayne LaPierre, CEO of the National Rifle Association one of the best-known and most successful political organizations in America. Its mission is to ensure that access to firearms is as free as possible in the United States and that gun culture remains a strong and vibrant part of the American way of life. And it is undoubtedly succeeding on both fronts. There are 13 million right-to-carry permit holders in the United States. In the past 30 years, the number of right-to-carry states has gone up sevenfold. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting for the Two Ring Circus podcast. The NRA has a nearly unmatched record of legislative success, blocking virtually all gun control legislation at not only the national, but the state and local level as well. 
Despite the continuous string of high-profile mass shootings and accompanying protests and calls for stricter gun control measures to address the prevalence of gun violence, the NRA's success continues and is in fact growing, with some states in recent years rolling back existing legislation to make access to firearms even easier than it already is. I'm proud to report that NRA isn't just holding the line for freedom, we're advancing it. Given the split screen of gun violence and NRA power we are seeing playing out in America nearly every week, one can wonder, how does the NRA continue its record of legislative success? One common assumption is that the NRA must be spending boatloads of money on campaign contributions and lobbying efforts. Yet publicly available records show that the NRA is actually far down the list of big money spending organizations in American politics. According to Open Secrets, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that tracks the flow of money in American politics through a careful analysis of publicly available records, the NRA is a relatively frugal group when it comes to inserting money into the political system. The NRA spent a meager $2.6 million in 2022 on lobbying, while the entire gun rights lobby spent just over $13 million in total, an average year over the past decade. While gun control organizations were significantly outspent, deploying only $2.3 million last year, neither of these sectors is particularly high on the list of lobby expenditures. Pro-environmental groups, for instance, not known for their particularly deep pockets, spent nearly $28 million on lobbying in 2022, while the insurance industry spent over $150 million and the pharmaceutical industry spent almost $400 million. A single obscure pharmaceutical company, Viatris, spends more annually on lobbying than the NRA, and Viatris itself is number 29 on the list of big pharma spenders. While Big Pharma does have an impressive legislative record, this success clearly comes at a high price, while the NRA's record, just as good and arguably better, comes with a much smaller price tag. The NRA's campaign expenditures are similarly dwarfed by large private donors, corporations, and interest group organizations. During the 2020 campaign cycle, the NRA made just short of $9 million in contributions to congressional campaigns, and since 1990, it has contributed a grand total of $52 million in all election cycles for House and Senate candidates, splitting its money fairly evenly between incumbents and challengers, most of them, however, Republicans. For contrast, Uline Incorporated, a shipping company and major Republican contributor, spent $90 million on congressional campaigns in 2020 alone and has contributed a quarter billion dollars to congressional races since 1990. Public sector unions, supporting mostly Democratic candidates, contributed $82 billion in 2022. Teachers' unions kicked in an additional $55 million, spending more in one election cycle than the NRA has spent on congressional campaigns over the past three decades. So how does the NRA go about compiling its impressive list of legislative wins when it actually spends a relatively small amount of money on lobbying and campaigns? One of the NRA's most potent tools is its legislative scorecard, which grades legislators on an A to F scale based on their voting record on gun legislation. For those politicians whose constituency contains a core of gun rights supporters, an A grade is an absolute must for re-election. The scorecard is stupendously effective because there are millions of single-issue voters in the gun rights universe. The NRA relies on this dedicated cadre of voters who select candidates almost entirely based on their Second Amendment positions. Even though a strong majority of Americans express support for the kind of gun control measures the NRA adamantly opposes, the voters who use the NRA scorecard as their electoral Bible are distributed across the political landscape in a way that gives them far more influence than their relatively modest size seems to indicate. That's Dr. Jack Miller, an expert in American politics at Portland State University and a close follower of the NRA's methods.
Other commentators said that the NRA's consistent electoral support is about more than just policy preferences among NRA members and gun owners at large, that it's a kind of cultural movement that undergirds the politics. The NRA has built a movement that has convinced its followers that gun ownership is a way of life, central to one's freedom and safety, that must be defended on a daily basis. These are the words of political writer Bill Scher. To beat the NRA at its own game, the gun control movement needs to better understand how the NRA has built an army of single-issue voters. NRA TV is a new piece of the puzzle, having been launched only in late 2016, but it's a window into the culture that the NRA has nurtured for decades. Every minute, the network pumps out a message that can be delivered regardless of external events. Liberal elites want to take away your guns and freedom, terrorists and criminals lurk everywhere, and you need to know how to defend yourself. And by the way, look how cool guns are and how powerful they make you feel. We all know California has some of the strictest and most ridiculous gun laws on the books. One of the newest, banning the sale of AR-15s. A gun lawmakers deem scary. Our own Carly Twistleman decided to make her own purchase of one before time ran out in California. She joins me live now. Carly? That's an excerpt from an NRA TV program demonizing a California gun control law. NRA TV runs an impressively slick and well-produced slate of shows, not just quasi-news shows and talk shows, also including Love at First Shot, geared towards encouraging women to get firearms training. Last time on Love at First Shot. We're not that far away from each other, but I can have my concealed carry permit. She can't. This gun is a great option for concealed carry because it's light and thin. I feel like it's my duty to protect myself and my home. Throughout the season of Love at First Shot, I'm going to dissect and simplify every piece of the right that guarantees the rest. I'll take on the anti-gun arguments and prepare you to do the same. That's the intro from Season 4, Episode 2. Here's an excerpt from another NRA TV program, Noir. In this episode, a Navy SEAL offers advice on preparing to confront a shooter in a movie theater. It's a very likely place to be able to be in a situation where you might have to draw your gun. And we've all been in a movie theater and thought to ourselves, what action would we take if somebody walked into that movie theater right now? Dr. Miller puts it this way. The NRA's rhetorical strategy is clear, consistent, and simple. Guns don't kill people, people kill people, is a phrase I've heard since the 1980s. With that mantra, every new mass shooting can be met with a finger pointed at the perpetrators, not the policies. You add to that the idea that guns protect people, and the NRA has an automatic policy response to the onslaught of mass shooting stories. We need more guns. We need to arm teachers, janitors, school administrators. We need more armed security guards in vulnerable public places. We need an armed populace ready to protect their homes and businesses and fellow citizens from the evil, deranged criminals who are everywhere. It's genius, really, because mass shootings and rising gun crime statistics can be responded to with a positive policy message rather than excuses and defense. We need more guns in the hands of the right people, not new laws that make it harder for law-abiding citizens to protect themselves and each other. So the NRA, rather than expressing a shameful complicity in the arming of an increasingly unwell population or a defensive stance, positions itself as the champion of public safety and comes out with a positive policy message that we need to roll back restrictions on law-abiding citizens. Dr. Miller contends that these arguments don't have to convince everybody, or even a majority of people, for the NRA's cadre of single-issue voters to retain the loyalty of enough elected officials to block further gun regulations. As long as NRA supporters are willing to vote against anyone who supports gun control and to care about nothing else, and as long as our political landscape is configured in such a way that these single-issue voters have outsized influence, it doesn't matter how large or vocal the gun control majority might get. The NRA will have a practically unbreachable firewall against even minor gun control legislation ever making it out of Congress. It's a political strategy built on exactly the right kind of minority rule to suit their purposes. 
Donald Trump once famously said that his followers would get tired of winning. Whether or not that's true, the NRA has clearly not gotten tired of winning, and neither have its millions of supporters. And never forget that your voice resonates far beyond this room. And when you're an NRA member, it resonates even farther, carrying the weight of millions of NRA members and tens of millions more Americans who support our cause and look to us for leadership in defending freedom. I'm Nigel Wilkinson, reporting from America. That's it for episode six of Two Ring Circus. Our next episode, Boring But Important Part Two, is an examination of the budget writing process and a consideration of why this process has broken down in recent years into last minute passage of massive omnibus funding bills, government shutdowns, and debt ceiling standoffs. Maybe not as boring as it used to be, but definitely important. Until then, thanks for listening.